Again, just a warning as we're kind of making our way to the conclusion uh, of 2 Corinthians. This is a, uh, a warning passage in sense, so it comes across a little bit harsher, uh, but we believe in expository preaching here, so we let the text set the agenda for the morning. So if you're new with us, just know this is his final passage. It's kind of a warning passage. It's talking about sin. It's a little serious, so just... just Kind of as we're reading, we, we want to read it in the emotional context it's written. Uh, Paul is kind of giving his last warning to his church to save them. We'll see the grace part as we're walking through this passage as well. But hear God's word, starting in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what Paul writes. He says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all those others, I warn them now while, uh, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives in power of the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be a severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for the tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss, so all the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, it was July 11th, 1908. And the Olympic Games were being held in London. It was the shooting event, and all the teams had arrived, except one. One team was missing. In fact, one team didn't even show up. That's not entirely true. They showed up. They just showed up exactly two weeks late for the event. Yes, one team in 1908 showed up exactly 12 days late for the event, and therefore missed the entire event. And I know what you're thinking, how in the world do you miss the Olympics? The, the biggest sporting event in probably their lives, how do you not show up to the Olympics? And so the problem was that one of these nations wasn't adhering to the other nation's standard in calendars. Yes, the Russians at the time were using the Julian calendar, and London, where the Olympics were being held, were using the Gregorian calendar, and it just so happened these calendars were off by 12 days, so sure enough. Because the Russians weren't adhering to the standard of the Olympic calendar, they showed up exactly 12 days late. 
to the Olympic event. Therefore, missing the event, and not only missing the event, but be, being disqualified from this Olympic event as well. And you're thinking, what a shame. How embarrassing. How do you not adhere to the standard of the calendars? Why wouldn't you look to make sure that you are on the right calendar? Like, how does this happen? And how it must have been so frustrating for the uh, uh, Russian Olympic kind of uh, athletes to, to miss their events simply because they didn't move to the standard of the Olympic calendar? But as I think of this story, my mind begins to think about the Corinthians. Because they too, we can say what a tragedy. Because they too are here and, and they're on the brink of disaster, on the brink of being disqualified because they're not adhering to biblical standards. And so here in this last chapter, Paul gives his final warning to his church. A warning for them to come back in line with biblical standards. A warning for them to come back in line with gospel standards. And Paul warns them if they choose, refuse to to come back in line with these standards, that they would surely be disqualified from this race of life. And we see in their lives that they missed the standard on so many different issues. Here the Corinthian church missed the standard of what it meant to be a godly leader. They thought it meant that you had to speak with elegance and, and great rhetoric, that, that you were the ones who were supposed to show this triumphal kind of spirit over your, your, your people you're speaking to, kind of a, almost a, a, a abuse. They had the wrong standard when it came to a theology of trials. Here was a group that said that if you were suffering, it was God's curse upon you, that you were weaker than all the rest. They had the wrong standard when it came to spiritual living, thinking that the ones who, who had the spiritual visions, the ones who were able to speak in tongues, were closer to God than the rest. They had the wrong standard when it came to everything about following God. So Paul turns to this church in this last chapter and warns them again to come back in line with gospel standards. Again, warning them that on his next visit, if they don't come back in line with gospel standards, that he was surely going to discipline his church. And as we're reading that text, you can almost hear it in his voice that he's not convinced that his words are making a difference. He's convinced that the previous 12 chapters that he wrote, that, that maybe they're not listening well enough. So at the end of chapter 12, we heard him. He says, my fear is if I show up, I will not find you as I would please. That they would still be stuck in their selfishness. They'd still be stuck in this one-upmanship of, of their culture of trying to, to be better than everybody else, elevating themselves as they pushed other people down. He was concerned that they weren't going to be transferred back to the gospel standard, so therefore he would have to discipline them. So again, we see his last warning in this chapter, and in this last chapter, we kind of see three movements in this warning. His first movement is he's turning to his church. He says, I need you to see the seriousness of your own sin. I need you to see how serious and how dangerous your sin is, and, and if you don't see the danger in it again, I'm going to have to discipline you on my, on my visit to you. The next movement we see is he turns to his church and he says, I need you to examine your lives to see if you are in the faith. The purpose of this is kind of his last kind of argument against his apostolic authority, trying to prove to this church that, yes, his ministry was right and good. In this last movement, we see a movement of prayer. He doesn't just call his church to something before praying that call upon their lives. 
And in this prayer, we see his main goal. He wants them to be restored. He wants restoration to take place. He wants them to pursue holiness once again. He wants them to come back in line again with the gospel. So we see these three movements. And the first movement, again, is him, them, uh, Paul really wanting them to see that their sin was a problem, that they needed to correct it. In fact, look at what it says again in verse 1. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. Remember here, Paul is warning them about his third visit. He wrote a letter earlier and on to them, and he was supposed to come earlier, but because that letter was so harsh, he was scared that it kind of hurt their feelings. So he kind of distanced his time between his first, this, this second letter that he wrote and his, his third visit. He wanted them to clean up their act first. He wanted them to kind of cool off and, and be okay with the harshness of that letter. He wanted them to, to be able to correct themselves before he came again. Well, because he put distance between this letter and when, when he was supposed to arrive, some rumors began to spread about Paul. The false teachers in Corinth saw this as an opportunity to say that Paul was kind of wishy-washy on his word. They also used this as a way to be able to say that Paul was strong in his letters but he had no backbone in person. That he was too weak to confront them, too afraid, didn't have enough courage. So the rumor that went around is, hey, you guys can continually act up. Paul's not going to deal with you. He's not going to discipline you. He's just a weak guy who's strong in his letters. When he appears, he's not going to do anything because he's too scared to do anything. Well, this is his refute to that in verse 1. He says, surely enough, if I come to you on this third visit, I will discipline you. And then he begins to quote from Deuteronomy 19. And as he's quoting from Deuteronomy 19, he says, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. Every charge must be established on the evidence of two to three witnesses. If that verse sounds familiar, it should. It's the same verse that Jesus quotes from in Matthew 18 when he's talking about uh, church discipline. And Matthew 18 is a very familiar verse. We probably all know it. You probably just don't know where it was found. It's the verse that says, where two or three are gathered, there he is in their midst. Matthew 18, this passage, where two or three are gathered, and there he is in their midst, might be the passage that's used out of context the most out of all of Scripture. Maybe time for Philippians 4.13, but very close in how often we use this text out of context. You remember this idea that where two or three are gathered, there he is in their midst. And we use it in the sense of, well, where two or three are gathered, there's God's presence. So it didn't, you don't need a large crowd. You just need two to three witnesses. Well, that's not what that passage is saying at all. It's giving us a different assurance. Because what Deuteronomy 19 is doing is it calls for two to three witnesses. It calls for two to three witnesses to be established for every charge for this purpose. There's the potential, if you just have one witness accusing somebody else, for that person to have a vendetta against you. Maybe they don't like you, so they're going to raise a charge against you, and then there's the chance for them just making a false claim against you just because they don't like you, and therefore we're not going to have a fair trial. So Deuteronomy 19 calls for two to three witnesses, not just one when you make an accusation against somebody. The purpose of that is, again, if you have two to three witnesses, it lowers the chance of somebody having a false claim, and it hires a chance for a fair trial. So in this passage, he's calling for two to three witnesses, which just so happens to be where two or three are gathered, there he is in their midst. 
The two or three that are gathered there in its midst are these two to three witnesses. So the assurance of Matthew 18 is the assurance that Paul is giving in this text as well, that when you come to confront somebody in their sin, these two to three witnesses, it's a difficult task. In fact, as we're walking through Matthew 18 and seeing how church discipline happens, we've already seen that two to three witnesses means that this person has been unrepentant when the person goes face to face with that person. So they're dealing with the person who is not changing their ways. There's dealing with the person who's stubborn and stuck in their sin. And I don't know if you've ever confronted somebody who's stuck in their sin. It's not a pleasant experience. It's somewhat fearful. So when Jesus says where two to three are gathered, there he's in his midst. He's saying, hey, I'm going to back these two to three witnesses in church discipline. I'm going to be there to give you courage to be able to confront the sin so that you can have a holy place. So when we hear that verse, that's what we should be thinking. Where two to three are gathered, it's the assurance of God's presence in the midst of a difficult situation of confronting somebody in their sin. Paul uses it in this text as he's quoting from the same verse that Jesus quotes from in Matthew 18 to use it for two purposes. The first purpose is to allow the Corinthians to know that God is with him as he's confronting them in their sin. Paul needs them to understand that he's not alone in their confrontation about their sin, but God is going to be backing him. Second reason he uses it is kind of like a play on words. He uses it in the sense of where two or three are witnesses. You need two to three witnesses. He uses it in the sense of his visits. In essence, he says, I visited once, I visited twice. Well, on this third witness, this is when it's going to take place. I've already given you two strikes. On this third visit, this is your third strike. So if you do not clean up your act now, then I surely, when I come, I will discipline you. He kind of uses it in that sense as he quotes from that uh, Deuteronomy 19. In fact, listen to what he says next in verse 2. He says, I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, catch these next words, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you but is powerful among you. That's a threat. It's a warning saying, hey, you you, you think I'm weak? Guess what? When I come again, I will not be weak and neither will my God be weak. But he's going to come in power. He's going to come to discipline you. I am going to come to discipline. I've already given you grace. The two times I came to you, I was kind and generous and gracious and merciful, but you still have not cleaned up your act. So on this third visit... Again, if you don't come in line with gospel standards, Paul says he's going to discipline his church. He needs them to see that their sin is a serious deal. It needs to be fixed. Catch his words again. Since you speak proof that God is speaking with me, he he will not be weak with you, but rather he too will deal with your sin in all his power. He says, I know you think I'm weak. But guess what? When I come again, I will not be weak, and God will be backing me in the discipline of your church. Again, Paul needs them to see the seriousness of their own sin, so that when they see the seriousness of their own sin, hopefully will allow them to clean up their act. And some of us, when we read Paul's words, there's a tendency for us to think maybe they're a little too harsh. Like, Paul, really... You're really going to confront them about their sin? 
Maybe we think that maybe Paul doesn't even have the authority to do so. Like, Paul, you're giving them a warning. Do you even have the authority to warn this church? But in those thoughts, I want us to think maybe there's a, a bigger deal going on with our own hearts. Maybe, maybe we have a problem with Paul's words is because we don't think sin is a serious deal. I, I'm with you in that. I, I feel the struggle, especially in a culture that, that kind of lowers morality. I find it so difficult and so hard to have a right biblical view about sin and not allow the culture's influence to influence my own life. Because we live in a culture, again, that's a lowered morality. And as you look at the culture, you kind of seen it done in two different ways. We've elevated tolerance. We've elevated tolerance to be the only morality really we, we really care about. And we're called to tolerate everybody else's behavior. To tolerate, their, 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 whether they're in sin or whether they're not, we're, we're called to tolerate their lifestyle. And when you lift tolerance to such a level that we have in our culture, to be the only morality, the only thing we care about, that if you're not tolerant and we get upset, what happens is that morality has already been lowered. Because if we're called to tolerate everybody else's lifestyle, then there is a sense that sin is not that big of a deal. Then you add that onto the entertainment industry. We've almost looked at this tolerance to purposely put sin in our shows so that we tolerate the sin or the lifestyle that is shown. And you go and watch and you just kind of flip through, whether it's Netflix or, or cable television. What used to to kind of shock us no longer shocks us. You look at video games today and you, you, you look at Netflix ratings, they all have mature ratings. It's almost so hard to find a video game for your children that, that is appropriate. And these shows on Netflix, when it's a mature rating because they've kind of lowered the bar of what morality looks like, many of us today, we don't even blink an eye watching these shows because it's our only option. So therefore, again, what are they teaching us? That sin is... Not that big of a deal. And maybe you're in this room and you say, yes, I agree with you. There has been a lowering of standard on morality. But the question I ask you, examine yourself, is to say, has the culture influenced your thoughts about sin? Has it influenced how you view sin? Do you view your own sin as a big deal? Because here's the thing, it's very easy for us to protest other people's sin but are we protesting our own sin within us? It's very easy for us to get angry at the culture, but are we angry at the sin that's within ourselves? The pride. The, the selfishness. The greed, the discontentment. The lust that is ever so present in our lives. Does, does that make us angry? Are we going to battle against that sin? Are we trying to correct the sin in our own lives? See, because you and I, as we flip open this book, what we see is this theme of sin. From Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20, sin kind of overlaps the entire thing. And we ask the question, why is that the case? Why do we see sin so often in, in Scripture? Because the Scriptures are trying to show us the dangers of what sin, what, what, what sin brings into our life. In the very beginning, as you open up this book, what do we see? We see that mankind's greatest, biggest problem is, is our own sin. Nothing else compares to it. That sin has the ability to condemn us. It has the ability to, to separate us from God. It has the ability to bring great devastation into our lives. 
And you see it throughout the scriptures. This thought of, 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 of sin and the serious nature of sin and the dangers even from the very beginning. Have you ever asked yourself why why do we go from the promise of Jesus coming in Genesis uh, chapter 3 and we have to wait so long until his second coming or his first coming? The question is that, that maybe, maybe they're trying to show us this dangerous nature of sin and that we can't solve this sin problem on our own so it pushes us to our Savior. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world and what do we see? Shame, guilt, and a curse of death that's placed on all mankind. What does it show us? That sin is dangerous. You move to Exodus. What do we see in Exodus? We see that the sin of, of a nation allows them to, to not be able to enter into the promised land. An entire generation dies within the desert. What does it teach us? That sin is dangerous. You go through Leviticus and all the codes and all the laws against sin and the penalty of that sin. What does it show us? That God thinks sin is a big deal and he punishes it. And yes, sin is dangerous. For 2 Samuel, what do we see? We see the sin of a nation, of the, of, of, of the Davidic kind of kingdom. And the sin taking place in this family's life, an entire nation and its people suffer. Because of sin. Sin is, is dangerous. You walk through Isaiah and Jeremiah and you walk through the minor prophets and what does it show us? Again, sin is a big deal and it is, it's dangerous. You see, that the, the scriptures are trying to show us the dangerous nature of our own sin. That our biggest problem is ourselves. And how what is going to rescue us from this sin? That if we do nothing about our sin, it's going to lead us to separation from our God for all of eternity. See, Paul needs us to see the serious nature because he wants us to be able to, to lean into our Savior so that our Savior can wash us clean. He needs us to take our sins seriously. In fact, what's so shocking about this passage is that the sin problem is a problem before Jesus and the sin problem is a problem after Jesus. In fact, you just make your way through the New Testament epistles. What do we see? We see the writers of the New Testament confronting their church because they're still stuck in some sin. So we ask the question, what is happening See, the great news of the gospel is, yes, the gospel rescues us from the eternal punishment of sin. The great news of the gospel is that, that the gospel has given us a new heart so we're no longer enslaved or inclined to sin. But here's the thing we have to realize. For his saints to experience that promise, we have to intentionally, with great courage, lean dependently upon the Spirit so that we can experience God's promises in our own lives. In other words, in the words of John Owen, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Too often, I think we just look at sin and think, not that big of a deal. But what Paul needs his church to understand, even after they come to Christ, if they don't fix their deal, that discipline is going to come. He's trying to save them from their discipline. So as you're looking at this passage, we see Paul's heart in all of this. He wants restoration. He wants this church to come back in line. He, he's calling them to, to, to look at their sin, the sin of their worldview and the sin of their actions, and to come back in line with gospel standards again. He's calling them to look at the sin in their own lives. He's desperately calling out. He says, hey, if you don't fix this thing, 
that on this next visit, I'm going to to have to discipline you for your sin and God will be backing me in this. So he first shows us the seriousness of our sin. He calls us, he says, hey, we, we, we need to fix this. He says, I will not, uh, 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 on my next visit, I will not spare you, Corinthians, because again, God is backing me in power. Verse 4 kind of clarifies that because he understands that he, his whole argument up to this point has been he's been weak because his Savior's been weak, but now he's calling his Savior powerful. So he kind of almost anticipates the question, Paul, how do you call your Savior weak if he's going to come in power? And what does he say in verse 4? He kind of clarifies that point. In verse 4 he says, For he was crucified in weakness, but what is he? He lives in power of God. And for we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Again, strong warning for them to clean up their act. That again, that when they come, when he comes on his third visit, if they haven't cleaned up their act, they will not find a weak Paul, they will not find a weak Jesus, they'll find a powerful Paul and a powerful Jesus who will discipline for their sins. Sin is a big deal. Secondly, he calls them to examine their lives. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ, he's, he's in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. This call to examine themselves and to see if they're in the faith is really Paul's last argument about his apostolic authority. We've already seen so many different arguments about him trying to prove that his ministry is true and right over his church but this last one might be the finest of it all. It's a very clever argument. See, as he calls them to examine themselves, to see if they're in the faith, it, it puts the church into a predicament. If they say they're not of the faith, well, then Paul will say, well, come back to the gospel. You've missed the whole point. You need to be saved. But if his church says, yes, they are in the faith, what does it do? Well, he's the church that planted this church. He's the one who brought this gospel message first. So for this church to say that, yes, they are of the faith, it's almost proving that his ministry is true and right, that the false teachers are wrong because he's the one who brought this message first. And if he's the one who planted this gospel message and it's saved his church, then Paul must be doing something right. You see his argument of what he's trying to prove? If they say they're of the faith, it almost proves that, yes, his apostolic authority is true because he preached the gospel. He got, it's the gospel. It's the one who got you saved. So there must be something that Paul has done right in your life because he got you saved. But there's another purpose as well. When he calls this church to examine themselves to see if they're, uh, if they're of the faith, what is it calling the church to do? It's calling the church to examine their lives and see if there's any fruit. So... so so even in this call to examine their lives is also a call to, for them to, to take sin seriously. For them to examine themselves. Because how are you going to examine, if, examine yourself to see if you're of the faith? The way we examine ourselves to see if there's any fruit in our lives. You see, as we look throughout Scripture, what do we see? We see that the biblical assurance of our salvation comes from the fruit of our lives. 
So in this call, he's saying, hey, do you have any fruit? Is this biblical assurance? We're not saved by good works, but it is the biblical assurance that something has transformed in our lives, that, that yes, God came in and transformed our hearts. So we're saved by grace, but that grace transforms our hearts, so therefore there should be fruit that first work took place. And we see that throughout Scripture. Just look throughout James' argument in James chapter 2. What does he say? He says, you want to see my, my faith? I'll show you my faith by my works. You look at Matthew chapter 25. How does the separation of the sheep and the goats take place? Again, it's by works. As you look throughout Scripture, you see this again in so many different places. Jesus, when he's trying to inform, uh, trying to, to tell his church, how do you spot false teachers in your midst? He says you will recognize them by their fruit. Jesus goes on to say this in John 13, 35, that they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, their actions. It's your fruit. 1 John 2, 3 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. How do, we, how do we claim to come to know him? By keeping his commandments, by following his word, by fruit. So Paul calls them to examine their faith, and as he calls them to examine their faith, he also calls them to examine their lives. And what a helpful kind of, kind of experience to go through. How many times have we sat down it says, does my life fall in line with the scriptures? How many times have we really sat down and really thought about this? Have we examined our own lives to see if we are of the faith? That we sat down and said, does my worldview come in line with, with a biblical worldview? So do we examine our, our, our lives and see, does, does our lifestyle come in line with gospel standards? Have we even asked ourselves that question? See, the college I went to, it had the, the best motto. It said, think biblically. We want to be a church that thinks biblically about all things. And this is our standard. Without this, what do we have? Nothing. We have speculation. We're all going to speculate how to live our lives? No, there's a standard. So we must come back in line with the standard. And, and this is my hope for my own life. I'd rather have every sort of other problem than a biblical problem. Rather have a scientific problem, philosophical problem, whatever it is, I don't want a biblical problem. So we need to come in line and say, what, 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 what is our worldview? Does it come in line with the scriptures? And as you look about what's going on with our nation, Roe versus Wade, it's, it's been shocking to see some of Christians' responses to this. We ask the question, is, it, is your thought and how you think about this process coming back in line with a biblical standard? I was reading somebody's response the other day and they're talking and it was just shocking. They started out with this line that says, I am Christian. And then they go on and say that I was considering a, a abortion. And I didn't have an abortion, so I have my daughter. The daughter's about seven to eight years old. But she says, I wish I, I, or I'm so thankful that I had that choice. I'm so thankful that I had the choice of whether I uh, uh, aborted my daughter or not. And I'm thinking, how can you say that? That you want the choice to to take your own daughter's life as she's eight years old and you still are so thankful that you had the choice whether to kill her or not? And she claims to be a Christian and I'm thinking, do you, have you not come in line with the scriptures? It broke my heart. Psalm 139 clearly says that God forms the baby in the womb, that we are wonderfully, 
wonderfully made. So in our church, yes, we, we take the life of, of, of the child in the womb so seriously because God is the one who knitted and we don't have any right to take that life. But we also take the mother's life very seriously and we want to come alongside her. That's why we take adoption and foster care so seriously at this church. See, I can't point somebody to, to not have an abortion and not come alongside them and help them at the same time. No, I must do both. If we're going to be calling for life, we must come alongside life all the way from when that baby is born to when that baby dies. So we come alongside the mothers and help her, support her, counsel her. When you look at what, what abortion is, I think 76% of abortions takes place for the mothers who don't have a father in their life or the husband, and they're below or at the poverty line. So what's the solution? Come alongside these mothers, help support them, provide for them, help them make that difficult, that decision so that they can come alongside that baby and see the gift of what that baby is. We must think biblically. My lines or my worldview doesn't come back in line with this, no matter what topic it is. I got to humbly look at saying, I'm going to submit to this book. Is it easy to do? No. But this is what God is calling his children to do, to have his heart, to have his thoughts about all things. So I encourage you, simply just examine your life. Look at your thoughts about all sorts of things, whether it's politics, whether it's Roe versus Wade, whatever it is, that you would have a biblical worldview. Look at your lifestyle. It's the way you're treating your spouse. Does it come in line with the scriptures? Is your addictions, is this what God has called you to do? Is, there, is he's giving you the freedom to, to not be stuck in pornography, not be stuck in alcoholism? Examine your lives to see whether we come back in line with scriptures. Lastly, he calls his church to pray. What I love about Paul is that he's not calling his church to do something that he's not first praying on behalf of his church. Look at what he says again, verses 7 through 11, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may, may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad that when we are weak and you are strong, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things and I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be as severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building you up and not the tearing you down. See, it's important for us to see what Paul was doing here. This warning as much as we kind of see it as, as Paul being too harsh, is really his grace. Imagine the picture of you walking your child, uh, uh, maybe across 15501, and you come to the stop there, and your child tries to run off into the road. What are you going to do to your child? You're going to correct your child. Your child doesn't, doesn't listen to you. You're going to discipline your child for its safety. Right? The, the worst thing you can do is look at your child and kind of put your hands up and say, you be you. You want to cross 15501 on your own? Go ahead and cross it. That's not loving. No, the best thing you can do is, is to warn your child 
And he doesn't listen to the warning you discipline your child for your child's safety. And this is what Paul is doing on behalf of his church. He's giving his church a warning for, for their good, for their blessing, so that they come back in line with the scriptures and hopefully that their eternity can be, be saved with, by the gospel. In fact, if you're looking, at what, I, what I see in this last prayer is two different things. First, I see his goal. His goal is restoration. His goal is sanctification. His goal is their holiness. He says, I, I want this for the building you up. I want this for your restoration. He says it again, very, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. That's his main goal in their life. He's not playing for their circumstances. No, he wants them to be in, in right relationship with, with their God. And secondly, I see how other focus this prayer is. Paul could be praying for a whole bunch of other things. I imagine Paul at this time, we've already seen all the troubles he had. He could have been praying for those. But he spends time praying for his church. He, he sacrifices on behalf of his church. In fact, you see it in this letter. Because what's going to take place? What, what Paul says in these kind of last verses right there, he's, he's kind of, uh, specifically verse 9, for we are glad that when we are weak, you are strong. What is he saying in that passage? If they correct themselves, before Paul gets there, what happens? Paul doesn't have to confront their sin, and the rumors continue on about Paul, that he's weak, he has no backbone, he's only strong in his letters. He's going to be peaceful, right? So Paul says, he's okay with that. He says, where we are glad when we are weak, so that you can be strong. You see his other focus in this? He wants the restoration, even if it means more rumors are being spread about him. So this prayer is other-focused. So what better way to conclude our series than to end it in prayer? Would you, would you pray this, this last verse 11 on behalf of our church? That we would rejoice that we would aim for restoration in our own lives, to come back in line with the scriptures, that we would comfort one another, that we would agree with one another, that we would live in peace because we're unified by the gospel. And the God of love and peace, that God will be with us. Would you dedicate yourself? See, one of the greatest gifts that we can give somebody else is the gift of prayer. One of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is the gift of prayer. Pray that an almighty God would have his hand of favor upon them. They would steer and incline their hearts to him so that they can live for all of eternity in his presence. One of the greatest gifts you can give our church is the gift of prayer. So we ask you, maybe this next verse, maybe put it on your refrigerator, maybe kind of put a marker in your Bible that you would simply just pray that prayer over our church. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for difficult texts like this, as hard as they are to hear and listen and to conform to. God, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you placed them in there for our good. God, let us be humble enough to listen well. In my own life, I feel the tug. My pride, my own selfishness wants to seek after my own desires. But God, help me 
help soften my own heart, that I'd humbly come to your word and adjust my life to fit into it. God, with my mind's eye, I picture Paul on his hands and knees calling out on behalf of the Corinthian church, even though the Corinthian church was not kind to him or was not nice to him. But I see him on his knees crying out and calling out to you. So God, I pray that our people would be the same type of people. That we would be people on our, on our knees. That we'd be broken on behalf of those who are hurting in this world. God, that we'd be broken on behalf of the sin we see in our own lives. That you would create a great repentance and the great news of the gospel is that you wash us clean of our shame and our guilt. The great news of the gospel is that we simply believe in your son, confess our sin, repent, and believe that Jesus is King and Lord, that you raise him from the dead, that we will be saved. Can't clean up our own act. We know it's by your spirit, so we pray that we would be dependent upon your spirit. God, give us your hearts. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.